Good afternoon, and welcome to the Heart Failure Beat. I'm Mike Rich from Washington University in St. Louis, and the topic for today's program is pregnancy and heart failure, which is also the focus of the February 2021 issue of the Journal of Cardiac Failure. Joining me today are Dr. Mary Noreen Walsh, better known as Minnow, who is Director of the Heart Failure and Cardiac Transplant Program at St. Vincent's Health Center in Indianapolis, Indiana, and past president of the American College of Cardiology, and Dr. Catherine Lindley, who is Associate Professor of Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, and current chair of the American College of Cardiology's Cardiovascular Disease in Women Committee. Drs. Walsh and Lindley served as guest editors for the journal's focus issue, which includes a series of papers and commentaries addressing various aspects of pregnancy and heart failure. So welcome, Minnow and Kate, and thanks for joining. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Minnow, let's start with you. Peripartum cardiomyopathy, or PPCM, is certainly the most widely known and best studied form of pregnancy-associated heart failure. And several papers in this issue provide new insights into this disorder. So how is PPCM defined, and just how common is this condition? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So peripartum cardiomyopathy is the definition is generally understood to be cardiomyopathy that occurs within a month prior to delivery up to five months postpartum with no previous evidence of cardiovascular disease in the woman who presents with it. So no previous cardiovascular disease at all. So that's generally the definition, although there's been some, you know, discussion worldwide about whether that definition should be broadened. The incidence of this is is variable, looking at various series around the world. And a really interesting paper that, that helps bring to light some new data on this is included in the special issue. And that uses epidemiology from Rochester, Minnesota and surrounding counties brought forth by the Mayo investigators. And they looked at the incidence in the population and showed that in their population and surrounding counties, it's about 20 cases per 100,000. This is quite different comparing to other countries in the world, with Haiti being the country most commonly noted to have a very high incidence of peripartum cardiomyopathy. But this is the paper that we included in this edition of the journal is actually, I think, instructive because it helps us better understand the U.S., incidence of peripartum cardiomyopathy. And maybe Kate has some some other thoughts. She's an expert in peripartum cardiomyopathy as well. Great. And so I believe also that one has to have a measured left ventricular ejection fraction of right. 45% or less right. in order to qualify for uh, right. DPCM. So great. I mean, this is a pretty rare condition, 20 out of 100,000. But since pregnancy is so common, it still means that we see a good number of patients with pericardium cardiomyopathy. But I think that this raises the question of what do we know about the pathophysiologic mechanisms of this condition and what are the risk factors for its development? So you already mentioned that it's more common, for example, in Haiti, and one would wonder why that might be the case. Kate, what what can you uh, say about these issues? As Minnow mentioned, there's really been a increasing uh, amount of research going on in this field over the last several decades with really a a growing body of knowledge. And 
currently the leading theory is that this is likely a condition that's related to a combination of both genetic and environmental factors. As Minnow mentioned, there certainly are areas of the country or areas of the world that seem to be more significantly impacted by this disease, for example, in Haiti and in some of the African countries. And what we've seen in the United States is that women of African descent certainly seem to be at increased risk of developing this condition as well. Some increased research over the last several years has really identified that there's likely a role of angiogenic imbalance that contributes to the development of this condition and likely sort of an inability to sustain that uh, angiogenic insult related to some sort of underlying genetic factors likely leads to the condition. Now, there are a variety of risk factors that have been thought to contribute to the condition for some time, including older age, African ancestry, chronic hypertension or hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. There was actually a great study that's going to be published in this edition of the journal looking at a recently validated risk prediction model that includes not only some of these previously recognized risk factors, including age and African ancestry, hypertension, multiple gestation, but also some novel risk factors, including diabetes, obesity, mood disorders, and low socioeconomic status. So I think as we continue to sort of further investigate this condition, we're going to hopefully continue to better understand who's at risk. And so we can kind of improve our ability to key in on the women who are going to be at highest risk of developing it and do a better job of quickly identifying and treating those women. Great. And speaking of treatment, what do we know about treatment? Are there therapies that have been shown to alter the natural history of this condition? And in particular, there's been a fair amount of discussion over the past couple of decades about bromocryptine. Does that have a role in treatment of uh, peripartum cardiomyopathy. Uh, Minnow, your thoughts? Yeah, well, the cornerstone of treatment of peripartum cardiomyopathy really includes guideline-directed medical therapy as we treat all patients with HEFREF and cardiomyopathy. But there has been for decades interesting data, again, primarily coming from outside of the United States on the use of bromocryptine in the acute setting. Investigators in South Africa and Germany in particular have contributed papers in this regard, not widely used in the United States, but certainly something to have in our armamentarium for women who are quite acutely ill with this disease. Kate, further thoughts about treatment? Well, I I agree completely with what Dr. Walsh has had to say about this, that really to date, standard GDMT is really the standard of care for these women. Certainly, I think it's going to be important for us to identify if there are some uh, disease-specific targeted strategies that we could take. I think important to remember, though, is that these women do need GDMT, and that should not be limited based upon the fact that they desire to breastfeed. And in fact, limited data has come out in the last several years identifying that it does appear to be safe for these women to continue to breastfeed. And we do know that a variety of beta blockers and ACE inhibitors and aldosterone blockade agents are safe to use in breastfeeding women. And so, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to treat women with the appropriate medical therapy, nor deny them the opportunity to breastfeed because of their underlying condition. 
And I think the other really unusual or, or important factors for this particular subset of women is to recognize their risk of LV thrombus and stroke. And although there's not strong data regarding who specifically needs it, but consideration of anticoagulation should always be something to consider. And finally, I think that uh, contraception should really be a cornerstone of therapy in these patients. Recognizing that recurrent pregnancy, particularly within the first year after diagnosis, is really a potentially life-threatening situation for these women. And so discussing and establishing safe and effective contraception is as beneficial or more beneficial than initiating beta blockade. That's not data-driven. That's just based on the, the theoretical benefits of preventing pregnancy. Are there, are there any agents in our armamentarium of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction that really shouldn't be used in uh, nursing mothers? We're extrapolating data to Valsartans and Cubitril based on the other agents, but I, I do think this was an area of a lot of misunderstanding for years until ACOG came out with a really definitive recommendation that women with pericardium cardiomyopathy and other uh, forms of heart failure can safely breastfeed with guideline-directed medical therapy. What about SGLT2 inhibitors? I don't know that there's data yet. Certainly not in heart failure. I don't know if there's data on SGLT2 inhibitors for other patients. I'm not aware of any data. Although, Mike, I think you're bringing up great points, which is that I think we as a research community need to recognize the importance of including breastfeeding and pregnant women in our studies because Unfortunately, when these women aren't included in randomized controlled trials, it leads to really a lack of knowledge about how we can safely treat them, which really leads to patient harm due to inability to provide, you know, guideline-directed medical therapy. So I think it's an important concept for us to consider as a community sort of moving forward and how we can more effectively but safely start to include these women more routinely in our uh, clinical trials. Great. So now let's talk a little bit about uh, prognosis. I remember some years ago that the standard rule of thumb seemed to be that about half of women with peripartum cardiomyopathy would fully recover and the other half would have persistent left ventricular dysfunction. Is this still the case? And are there factors that can predict a more favorable or less favorable course? And in particular, is there a role for biomarkers in, in guiding our assessment of prognosis? Kate? Well, I think uh, probably the study that's been most helpful in helping us identify the prognosis in these patients is, has been the IPAC study, which was a study of 100 patients sort of following their path forward. And what we did identify is that uh, probably the biggest cutoff in determining prognosis is really their initial ejection fraction. We know that women who have an initial ejection fraction greater than 30% have a very good chance of having at least partial, if not full recovery, whereas women who have an initial ejection fraction less than 30% have a much poorer prognosis. About a third of them will still have complete recovery, but only about a third will have partial recovery and another third will have no significant recovery. We do know that there are other factors that contribute to prognosis though. It has become apparent from a variety of studies that women who are of the black race are less likely to have recovery. The reasons for that are unclear, whether that's related to genetics, uh, socioeconomic factors or bias and access to care. 
We know that women with more LV remodeling and, and larger left ventricles are less likely to recover. We also know that a significant delay in diagnosis and or a longer time uh, from delivery to diagnosis is also associated with worse outcomes. Now, with regards to biomarkers, there was a nice article that is published in this edition of the journal, which actually evaluated women several years out from delivery with peripartum cardiomyopathy. And they looked at a variety of different cardiovascular biomarkers, including those angiogenic biomarkers, including SFLT1 and essential growth factor, as well as cathepsin D and BNP. And what they identified is that women with higher levels of those biomarkers actually had worse exercise tolerance several years out, as well as some worse markers of, of cardiac function by imaging. So although you know this isn't a, a value that we can use at the time of diagnosis, it does appear that there seems to be some relationship between biomarkers of myocardial injury and adverse function and long-term outcomes. So I think that this is an important area for us to continue to investigate. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add to that, Kate, that great summary is that, you know, this is a really, really important question for patients because it is not uncommon that peripartum cardiomyopathy occurs with the first birth. And and this is an area that we need to become very comfortable doing shared decision-making with our patients because we need to really come fully prepared with um, prognostic information based on that particular patient with everything that we have about her, including biomarkers, if possible, and her trajectory with ejection fraction to better inform her about her risks going forward. Because this is not just a theoretical discussion. This is an area where women desperately wish to have a second or even third or even fourth child. So it's really important that we continue to gather data here. What are the current recommendations about subsequent pregnancies in these women? And what kinds of things do you look at in trying to advise women about possibility of having another pregnancy once they've had PPCM? Well, clearly recovery of ejection fraction is the best predictor. Complete recovery of ejection fraction is is can is the best prognostic factor we have for subsequent pregnancy. But that's for intended pregnancy when you when we have a, a, a opportunity to have a discussion and shared decision making. But as we all know, women have unintended pregnancies all the time, and the women who do most poorly with a subsequent pregnancy are those who did not recover LV function. All right, great. Well. I want to shift gears at this point and talk about the other form of heart failure. And of course, I'm referring to heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Uh, as mentioned earlier, PPCM requires that the ejection fraction be less than 45%. So preserved ejection fraction doesn't really quite meet the criteria for uh, PPCM. But I'm guessing that it must occur. And so I'm going to ask Kate, uh, is this a thing? And uh, what do we know about this condition? Yeah, so I definitely think that this is a thing. You know, HEFPEF is something that we typically think of uh, occurring in middle-aged or older women, oftentimes after years of hypertension or diabetes. You know, I began to notice early on when I started taking care of pregnant women that I was seeing women come in with symptoms of heart failure and elevated BNP and pulmonary edema on their imaging and we'd get an echo and they'd have normal ejection fraction or their ejection fraction would be 
48% or 50%. And of course, according to our traditional criteria for peripartum cardiomyopathy, these women don't meet criteria for peripartum cardiomyopathy. And at that time, I started going to the literature and really there was very little that I could find there. There was some scattered reports of pulmonary edema in women with preeclampsia, which is a known complication of preeclampsia, but not much information about uh, cardiovascular function. And, you know, I think it's really a great thing that this is starting to be recognized much more frequently now. I think partially as the field of cardioobstetrics has begun to grow, and this population of women is starting to be paid a little more close attention to. There's a really nice study, database study done by uh, Dr. Briller and her colleagues uh, in this edition of the journal, looking at women who developed HEF related to pregnancy. And uh, they found that this occurs in about, you know, at least based on database numbers, uh, seven in 100,000 pregnancies, with about half of these cases occurring after delivery, about a quarter at the time of delivery, and then about 20% uh, in the antepartum period. And I would say this uh, approximately lines up with uh, what I've experienced clinically, that this most often occurs in that first week or so postpartum when uh, women begin to uh, sort of, um, uh, all of their third space fluid sort of starts to uh, mobilize. And uh, if they have any underlying diastolic dysfunction related to chronic hypertension, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, or, or perhaps any other myocardial injury related to pregnancy, that contributes to pulmonary edema. They identified in this study that risk factors included black race, increased age, and low socioeconomic status, in addition to either chronic hypertension or hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, as well as other known risk factors for HEF, including obesity, diabetes, chronic kidney disease. So, you know, I think there's a lot we don't know about this condition because research into this uh, particular subset of patients is relatively young. But I think it's going to be important for us to continue to study this group of women. What is the prognosis for this group of women over the long term? Are they at increased risk of developing accelerated and early HEF-PEF down the line? Are they at increased risk of developing this with future pregnancies? Or is this just sort of a transient phenomenon related to pregnancy? I don't think we have the answers to that yet. But I do think that prior imaging studies uh, have identified that this is not all just related to uh, third space fluids, but likely related to some uh, underlying myocardial injury. All right, great. And, you know, it seems to me from what you're saying that heart failure with preserved ejection fraction maybe counts for a quarter of heart failures. Pregnancy-associated heart failure has similar risk factors and maybe even similar prognosis to PPCM. And so it strikes me that uh, perhaps the current definition of PPCM is maybe uh, outlived its usefulness and wondering what your thoughts about that are, Mema? Well, I, I, think, I think you're exactly right, Mike. And I also think that kind of overlapping with both PC, PPCM and HEFPEF associated with pregnancy is postpartum preeclampsia, which happens with you know, a completely normal delivery or maybe even a more urgent C-section delivery with, as Kate's describing, mobilization of fluids. And we have a woman come in two, three, four, five days to an emergency department, two, three, four, five days postpartum with pulmonary edema, not much decline of LV function on the echo, 
pretty significant volume overload. And the importance of that presentation is that we as cardiologists should be following that patient long-term. We don't, as Kate already said, we don't understand this well yet because we don't have large registries to identify how these women do, but that's a woman who's at high risk for future cardiovascular disease. Kate, you um, contributed a wonderful uh, perspective on this topic to the special issue of the journal Further Thoughts. Well, I think that, you know, as I've mentioned before, there are likely a combination of environmental and genetic factors contributing to all of these different phenotypes. And, you know, I'm not so sure that, you know, the woman who comes in with an EF of 10% is really the same disease as the woman that comes in with an EF of 50%. But we do know that the risk factors for all of these conditions are similar and the initial presentation for all these conditions are similar. And I think we're probably, you know, looking at similar environmental risk factors, perhaps overlaying on a variety of different genetic risk factors leading to a variety of different phenotypes. And I think that perhaps rather than just having a hard cut point of this is heart failure and this is not heart failure, it's time to perhaps start thinking a little bit more broadly about these women and, you know, how do we need to be treating and following all of them? And, and what is all of their risk, um, both for future pregnancies and for the long term? Yeah, I completely agree. Now, in our final minutes here, there's one other topic that I'd like to bring to the fore. And it's one that I think is of great importance to heart failure specialists. And that is whether pregnancy in women who've undergone heart transplantation and in those who or on durable mechanical circulatory support, is, is this safe? And what kinds of outcomes can we expect, Minna? Yeah, I am really pleased that we chose to include in this edition of the journal a review by Drs. Philippus and uh, Kittleson. They've done a lot of work in this space, and I, I think based this review article on pregnancy after cardiac transplantation on a survey that they did of cardiac transplant centers that was published previously. And they found concerningly that a large percentage of centers have no policy around cardiac transplantation, no idea about how to counsel women regarding cardiac transplantation, and a lot of just sort of just say no, it's not possible, it's not something that women should do. So they've done a really great job of reviewing all the important considerations in cardiac transplantation, including preconception counseling what women may be at risk for. For example, a woman who came to cardiac transplantation because of peripartum cardiomyopathy has a significantly higher risk with, with pregnancy during transplantation of redeveloping peripartum cardiomyopathy, for example. But uh, there's a lot to be considered with regard to contraception, with regard to immunosuppression during pregnancy. And then the need for specialists of all sorts of different disciplines around the decisions regarding delivery and subsequent care postpartum. So it's a great review. I encourage everyone listening to read it. And I really think it's it's something that transplant centers need to, you know, spend some time doing a journal club around this because as the authors found out in their previous work, there are a lot of centers who are just telling women you can't get pregnant. And I, I think it's pretty clear that in, in, at an experienced center, this is a this is a possibility for, for many of our patients, and we need to take that really seriously. So what about the VAD population? Women on VADs, is it okay for them to become pregnant? 
That's a much tougher call, and it's generally not recommended that women who are supported with mechanical circulatory support get pregnant, primarily because of the anticoagulation and thrombosis risks. The authors at the University of Florida did a literature search on this, and after excluding a lot of studies that included treatment of peripartum cardiomyopathy with temporary assist devices, they came up with a series of seven women pregnant on durable support. One woman catastrophically died with an intracranial hemorrhage and had fetal demise at the same time. Of the other six, the University of Florida authors report that all the women did fairly well. There were not significant mechanical complications, neither thrombosis, and the women didn't suffer bleeding. This is a lot harder to consider than pregnancy after cardiac transplantation primarily because of the need for very careful monitoring of anticoagulation. On warfarin, as we know, LVADs cannot be anticoagulated with any other therapies as of yet. And so planned pregnancy, and they did not report on any planned pregnancies, but planned pregnancy would have to take into consideration what a woman's previous thrombotic risks were, how she's done on support, are there any future options for transplant prior to discussing pregnancy, and then exquisite monitoring during the pregnancy for both hemodynamic changes that may need to occur with, for example, pump speed, and then close monitoring of anticoagulation. Wonderful. So, you know, I think we've learned really a lot about pregnancy and heart failure over the past couple of decades, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And so I'd like to ask each of you, what do you think the single most critical research question that needs to be addressed over the next five or 10 years. Kate? Wow, limiting it down to one is pretty tough because there is so much work that needs to be done here. I think I'm going to have to at least take two. And I think that those are going to be number one, we have to do a better job of identifying the women at highest risk for developing heart failure earlier. Although everyone knows that heart failure is a cardiovascular complication of pregnancy, we also know it's one of the leading causes of maternal mortality, and it often goes un or under-recognized. And so we have to do a better job of identifying who is going to develop it and capturing them before they development or early on so we can treat them. And number two, I think we really need to learn a lot about understanding prognosis of pregnancy-associated heart failure, whether that is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, both, as Minna was saying, for better understanding prognosis for subsequent pregnancies, as well as understanding long-term morbidity and mortality for these women. Great. Minna? I'll add to that that I think we need to better understand for all cardiovascular disease in women who are pregnant is the disparities in care that we see in treatment of these patients and the worse outcomes for, in particular, African-American women. And until we understand that and understand how to prevent it, I think we're really focusing our research on the wrong end. We, we know that this is actually a critical issue that we hear about almost daily in hospitals around the United States, and we need to focus our attention on that. Yeah, I think those are great points. Uh, you know, we've spent this discussion on heart failure during pregnancy, but heart failure is clearly not the only cardiovascular disorder that has an important impact on women during pregnancy and of childbearing age in general. 
Well, you know, this has been a great discussion, and we're just about out of time. But before signing off, I want to thank uh, Drs. Walsh and Lindley for their outstanding contributions to the pregnancy and heart failure focus issue and for providing their insights today on this extremely important topic. I'd also like to encourage our listeners to subscribe to the podcast. Visit our website at onlinejcf.com. Follow us on Twitter at at jcardfail. And, of course, submit your work to the journal. Until next time, this is Mike Rich on behalf of the JCF and the Heart Failure Beat.